Hello, and welcome to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I am your host, Mr. Miller. This podcast will cover a number of topics that happened on this date in history. Please visit the podcast webpage at thishappentoday.buzzsprout.com. There you can download the notes page, which will help you organize the information, as well as develop your own ideas on how these events change the world around us. If you're interested in hearing more, please consider subscribing so you will not miss out on what happens tomorrow in history. Today is May 1st. On this day in 1931, President Herbert Hoover dedicated New York City's Empire State Building, pressing a button in the White House that turned on the building's lights for the very first time, 45 days ahead of its original projected opening date. Some 350 guests attended the opening ceremony and the following luncheon, including New York Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt and former Governor Alfred E. Smith. Fog obscured the view from the luncheon site on the 86th floor. The tower lights atop the 102-story structure first came on in November of 1932 to signal that Roosevelt had defeated Hoover in the presidential contest. The Art Deco skyscraper has risen to a height of 1,250 feet in a competition between Walter Chrysler of Chrysler Corps and John Raskob, a financier and advisor to General Motors, to see which of them would erect what would be the world's tallest building at the time. Chrysler had already been gun work on the Chrysler Building, a 1,046-foot skyscraper in Midtown Manhattan. Raskob, chairman of the Democratic National Committee, assembled a group of investors, including Smith, whom Hoover had defeated in the 1928 presidential election. Raskob had managed Smith's campaign. The Empire State Building went up in just over a year. At times, the frame grew by four and a half stories a week. It imbued the New Yorkers with a sense of pride that helped ease the pain of the Great Depression during which many of the city's residents were unable to find work. The Depression's grip on New York's economy remained evident when a year later, 75% of the Empire State's building office remained vacant. At its peak, the project involved more than 3,500 workers, including 3,439 on a single day, August 14th of 1930. Many of them were Irish and Italian immigrants. They also included a contingent of seemingly fearless Mohawk ironworkers from Kanawaki Reserve near Montreal, Canada. According to official accounts, five workers died during its construction, although New York Daily News reported 14 deaths. The building cost nearly $41 million, about $535 million in today's money, including the cost of demolishing the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which had opened on the site in the 1890s. The project came in at $20 million under budget. In 1972, the building, by then long profitable, lost its standing as the world's tallest in the North Tower of the New York World Trade Center, which collapsed after a terrorist strike on September 11, 2001. The Empire State Building is now the fourth tallest skyscraper in the United States and the 40th tallest in the world. It remains the third tallest building in New York City behind one World Trade Center, which was completed in 2013, and 432 Park Avenue, a residential structure completed in 2015. Currently, the world's tallest building is the Burj Khalifa skyscraper, which has 163 floors and soars 2,717 feet above Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. 1962 was the year of the discount department store. Although there are examples of discount houses that predated that year, especially in the Northeast, most of the biggest names opened their doors in 1962. Four retailers from this class of 62 have made it to 2021. Three are thriving, but one, regarded as an industry icon, is barely open and has been fading away for decades. The SS Krejci Company, the country's third largest variety store chain in 1962, decided to establish a discount store prototype. 
After studying the competition and learning what did and didn't work, Kresge decided, developed a new division called Kmart. It offered low prices, large parking lots, late hours, and most importantly, name brand merchandise. The early promotional material guaranteed Kmart shoppers satisfaction always with a store that could be clean, well-maintained, and well-stocked. Kresge's thrifty credit plan, used for large purchases, was also heavily advertised. When the first Kmart discount store opened up on March 1st of 1962 in Garden City, Michigan, 4,000 curious customers waited in line for the doors to finally unlock. Kresge intended for Kmart to have a national presence. By the end of 1962, 18 Kmarts were in operation. Within a decade, that number swelled to 800. As a discount store, competition intensified in the 1980s. Kmart expanded beyond its means. It overtook storefronts vacated by other failed discounters and neglected its aging fleet of long-established locations. In 1992, Kmart lost its discount store dominance. In an attempt to revive sales and profits, the company embarked on a modernization plan that included new layouts, brighter lighting, newer fixtures, spotless floors, and a partnership with Little Caesars Pizza. But it was too little too late. In January 2002, Kmart, with 2,100 stores, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. The retailer immediately closed about 10% of its stores and was acquired by the hedge fund king, Eddie Lampart. Lampert also purchased Sears and merged it into Kmart, but Lampert allowed the company to languish. He failed to invest in technology and store modernizations and drained many of the company's assets. Kmart has continually closed stores over the past two decades, and only 21 currently remain in operation. These locations often feature off-brand merchandise on sparsely stocked shelves alongside walled-off sections of the store's interior space, and most of these survivors, unlike the almighty all-night supercenters, close every day at 6 p.m. The idea of using American Indians who are fluent in both their tribal language and in English to send secret messages in battle was first put to test in World War I with a Choctaw telephone squad and other native communications experts and messengers. However, it wasn't until World War II that the U.S. military developed a specific policy to recruit and train American Indian speakers to become code talkers. What is a code talker? A code talker is a name given to an American Indian who used their tribal language to send secret communications on the battlefield. Most people have heard of the famous Navajo code talkers who use their traditional language to transmit secret allied messages in the Pacific theater of combat during World War II. But did you know that there were at least 14 other native nations, including the Cherokee and Comanche, that served as code talkers in both the Pacific and Europe during the war? The irony of being asked to use their native languages to fight on behalf of America was not lost on code talkers, many of whom have been forced to ascend government or religious-run boarding schools that tried to assimilate native peoples and would punish students for speaking their traditional language. The U.S. Army was the first branch of the military that began recruiting code talkers from places like Oklahoma in 1940. Other branches, such as the U.S. Marines and Navy, followed a few years later, and the first class of 29 Navajo code talker U.S. Marine recruits completed its training in 1942. Apart from basic training, these men had to develop and memorize a unique military code using their mostly unwritten language and were placed in a guarded room until this task was complete. The first type of code they created, Type 1 code, consisted of 26 Navajo terms that stood for individual English letters that could be used to spell out a word. For instance, the Navajo word for ant, Wolachi, was used to represent the letter A in English. Type 2 code contained words that could be directly translated from English into Navajo, and the code talkers also developed a dictionary of 211 terms, later expanded to 411 for military words and names that didn't originally exist in the Navajo language. For example, since there is no existing Navajo word for submarine, the code talkers agreed to use the term Beshlo, which translates to iron fish. Most code talkers were assigned in pairs to a military unit. 
During battle, one person would operate the portable radio while the second person would relay and receive messages in the native language and translate them into English. Their work was highly dangerous, especially in the Pacific, because Japanese soldiers would deliberately target officers, medics, and radiomen, and code talkers had to keep moving as they transmitted their messages. The work of hundreds of code talkers was essential to Allied victory in World War II, and they were present at many important battles, including at Utah Beach during the D-Day invasion in France, and at Iwo Jima in the Pacific. In fact, 5th Marine Division Signal Officer Major Howard Connor stated, were it not for the Navajos, the Marines would never have taken Iwo Jima. Despite their heroic contributions during the war, American Indian code talkers were told that they had to keep the work secret. They couldn't even tell their family members about the communications work. Since the codes they developed remained unbroken, U.S. military wanted to keep the program classified in case the code talkers were needed in future wars. Even when the World War II code talker program was declassified in 1968, national recognition of code talkers was slow. While there was some recognition in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't until 2001 that congressional gold medals were given to the Navajo and other code talkers. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening, and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com The Empire State Building at Politico.com the first Kmart department store at Forbes.com, and U.S. Code Talkers at NationalWW2Museum.org. The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on Incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.